Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Flashes, huh? What's your favorite scary movie? Um, <laughs> not that one. <laughs> Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking mad scientists. We're talking, I must say, Dr. Hill, I'm very disappointed in you. You steal the secret of life and death, and here you are trysting with the bubble-headed co-ed. And we're talking, the cat dies again? And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And oh, we're talking uh, severed head cunnilingus. Oh boy, that scene is nasty and filthy and very provocative it is i mean yeah it's provocative now so i can only imagine what it was like in 1985 although i will say that hearing barbara crampton talk about it it's um mm-hmm. it's still disturbing but like she's very much like a yeah you know like this is how i did it blah blah blah, blah. and like it it, it it feels very matter of fact mm-hmm. oh i mean a consummate professional you know <laughs> here i am fully laid out nude on the slab having this like disembodied head thing going out my tit with bloody sucking noises uh, yeah, it's just a day's work, I guess. Just a day's work. Uh, everyone, we are discussing Stuart Gordon's adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's Reanimator. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, man, this is a great movie. Yeah, this is really, really solid. Uh, I had only seen it once before, and I didn't know that it was going to mix comedy with sort of exploitation stuff. So mm-hmm. I found the first watch very... I just couldn't get a read on the tone. So I thought it was uneven and just kind of, oh, the special effects are really good, but the performances are wildly varying and stuff. Knowing what it is for this rewatch, I really wound up appreciating this film. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So um, I I like you, I actually saw this movie for the first time about five years ago, and it was in a triple feature with all the other two sequels. Um, So Reanimator, Bride of Reanimator, and Beyond Reanimator. I... I agree, because like, people talk about the humor in this film a lot, and I mm-hmm. think maybe what I struggled with on that first watch was, yeah, it's it's not a movie where there's jokes. Like, it's not the movie isn't, like, doing all these things where it's like, look, it's so funny. It's more so that just, I don't know, like, the performances mixed with the tone, mixed with the material, just kind of make it funny. But it's also, mm-hmm. there's so many scenes where you're kind of like, should I be laughing at this right now? I'm not <laughs> quite sure. 
yeah, some of the comedy, like the moment where Dr. Hill is basically sexually assaulting, like there is no ifs, ands, or buts. He's definitely sexually assaulting Barbara Crampton's Megan. But it's also so over the top and ridiculous that Mm -hmm. it almost becomes funny, but then you feel bad about laughing for it. But I find a lot of the Dr. Hill stuff in the last act maybe even the last two acts to be very silly when he's not being incredibly predatory yeah well yeah well and that's actually what i like about this movie too because like you know you start this and it's like okay well herbert west is your villain mm-hmm. and then it's like at the, around that midway point you know once dr hill gets decapitated it's kind of like oh okay he's the villain and herbert is kind of like our morally ambiguous anti-hero Hmm. Yeah, it's not someone that you can necessarily root for because he has done a bunch of really bad shit. But his intentions are so genuine in a way like he truly does believe that this is all to advance science. You know, he wants a little bit of the glory. He obviously doesn't want Dr. Hill to take credit for it. But he's not doing this because he's an asshole. He's just narcissistic well but that's what makes a good villain though because the best villains like believe what they are doing is for the betterment of society Mm -hmm. yeah no that is true yeah so but you have not seen the sequels to this have you i have not no this is the only one i've ever seen we won't go into them too much folks um i i will say full confession i actually do prefer the sequel bride of reanimator to this film if only because i think it's wackier oh okay Beyond Reanimator, I did not particularly care for because it was it was like a mid two thousands original sci fi movie, um, and it shows. Right. I will say though, for that sequel, I mean, we get both Herbert West and Dan Kane and Doctor Hill, like the actors that played all of them. They all return. Oh wow! Okay. Oh yeah. Hill's head sprouts wings, flies around. He uh, can control zombies with his mind. It's really fun. I mean, we're starting to see some of that here, so I'm not at all surprised that that's the direction we continue in. Exactly. But back to the original film. Okay, so Reanimator is based on H.P. Lovecraft's short story, Herbert West, Reanimator. And this was written between October of 1921 and June of 1922, but was serialized uh, from February through July of 22. Right. And Trace, I'm going to stop you right there just because I know people are going to want us to say something about H.P. Lovecraft. And folks, we have briefly talked about some of the controversy and why he is a garbage piece of shit. If you want to go back and listen to our episode on Incident in a Ghost Land. Yeah, he's a racist. He's a homophobe. He's a misogynist. Mm-hmm. Um, He's a piece of shit. But yeah, we're glad he's dead. He has, though, contributed to horror in meaningful ways that we continue to need to explore and And uh, yeah, so we'll acknowledge bad dude, but he has done some interesting and or good work. Yeah, it's the ultimate like separate the art from the artist scenario. Well, maybe not the ultimate one. There's plenty of those out there. but (laughs) (laughs) He's a good example. He's a good example of it. Um, But yeah, no. so this was released, though. So one a month. So we had six short like stories that comprise the whole story. Uh, Okay. This is also the first story to mention Lovecraft's fictional Miskatonic University, and it's Mm. one of the first depictions of zombies as scientifically reanimated corpses with animalistic and uncontrollable temperaments. Oh, really? That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, again, it's in 1922, so we didn't have a lot of zombie stuff at that time. Right. Huh. Okay. So, uh, yeah, the film, however, is the feature directorial debut of Stuart Gordon, and I will show my ass right now, y'all. I don't think I've seen any other Stuart Gordon films. I think he directed one of the Masters of Horror. Mm Mm-hmm. He did. 
And I have seen that. And I think that's my only other touch point. Yeah, his big one. So From Beyond, I haven't seen. Dolls, mm-hmm. I haven't seen. Um, mm-hmm. He did Pit in the Pendulum, like a Poe adaptation. Haven't seen that. Oh, Castle okay. Freak. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dagon, right. I think, was his last big film. Oh, actually, I have seen Dagon and I fucking hated it. But you know what? I should probably re- go back and rewatch it because that was tantamount to your oh trace was a shitty 17 year old i think i watched that when i was in high school and i was like what is this fish people what the fuck oh yeah i I mean i haven't seen it admittedly i have had people recommend it to me because of the aquatic horror stuff right yeah so maybe we'll watch that one night together just as a date night there we go yeah (laughs) i will say though i did just watch um abel ferrara's 1993 body snatchers remake for the first time a few weeks ago Ooh, how was that uh, it's quite good, actually. But Stuart Gordon nice. and Dennis Paoli, they are also two of the screenwriters on Reanimator. Um, they are two of the three screenwriters on Body Snatchers. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So what you're saying is we should know more Stuart Gordon because that's not a bad list. No, and that's why I was honestly a little nervous going into this episode. You know what, everyone, whenever we have a big movie like this, especially if I'm not super familiar with it, I'm always kind of like, oh, God, like I'm a little nervous. I want to get it right. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw that I had seen none of Gordon's other filmography, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And folks, many of those titles are potential stay tuned future episodes, at least from beyond that one, like penis forehead. It's in our wheelhouse. I at least own from beyond on Blu-ray. I just never watched it. But anyway, there we go. OK, so yeah, this is Stuart Gordon um, at the time. So Gordon was from Chicago and he was the artistic director for the Organic Theater Company for 15 years. And this is a company that he and his wife, Carolyn, started in 1969 using their wedding money. Oh, boy. Okay. His wife, by the way, plays Dr. Herod in the film. Like basically it's uh, Kane's like kind of boss lady doctor. I loved her. Yeah, she's great. She's great. But in their theater, they focused on original content. So, you know, they weren't doing like tours of like the most famous plays. They're doing like new work. Mm. They attracted a lot of many like now famous actors with their programming. And so one day Gordon was just like, hey, you know, we have all these great actors. I should just like make a movie with them. Right. They were going through ideas, whatever, and someone suggested to Stuart Gordon, like, hey, like, you know, horror is so hot right now, you should do a horror movie. Um, By the way, have you read Lovecraft's Herbert West Reanimator? I love that it's just, like, that easy, too. (laughs) It's a very straight line of how this got made. Yeah, no rights issues, no talent. Well, I mean, I'm sure you're going to tell me there were probably some challenges because it's a low-budget indie and there's always hurdles. But yeah, I love the idea. Yeah, let's just make a movie because we've got this cadre of actors and we've got some money. So sure, let's just do it. Surprisingly, Joe, not as many hurdles as you would think. And I I did listen to the commentary on Arrow's Blu-ray for this. It's like it's got all the cast, basically. Stuart Gordon has his own commentary. But just hearing them talk about it and like even in like there's an hour-long documentary which is where i pulled a lot of the information from for this production history it Mm -hmm. just sounded like they all had so much fun doing this the dream right like right i think we all recognize that it is a major feat to make any kind of movie never mind an independent film where you maybe don't have the net the safety net Mm -hmm. that you would with a studio But I love the idea. I mean, you're a theater kid. So I love the idea of being part of a troupe and just getting together and doing the rehearsals and making art. Like I have such fond memories of being a member of that team. So the idea that you then also make a fucking really memorable cult film is just cherry on top. Agreed. Like I don't miss a ton of high school, but I do miss my theater troupe days. Right. Yeah. 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 
But yeah, so he had not read Reanimator. Uh, so he went and got a copy from the library and read all six issues. Um, because, though, this was a serialized story, he said, well, you know, instead of a film, why don't we do it as a half-hour television series? And oh, okay. we're going to keep it a period piece. It's going to be set in the early 1900s. Um, they oh. shot this idea around, even took it to PBS, who promptly said, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's not the best fit for PBS's brand. Uh, but I mean, I guess, you know, it's 1985. Well, that's the other thing, too. It's a 30-minute, I'm not going to call it a sitcom, but mm-hmm. they were told, hey, this half-hour format is unsellable, so you should make it one-hour episodes instead. So, Definitely. they did. If you're thinking Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and all that other stuff, right? Ex- well, yeah, exactly. But what they did was they actually wrote scripts for 13 one-hour episodes. Holy shit. Okay. Yeah, so they're taking this around and shopping it. Keep getting no. And the, the original writer of these of these episodes was William J. Norris. And after so many rejections, he had had enough. So mm. he got frustrated with all the rejections, turned it over to Dennis Powley at this point. And Powley was a teacher at the time who taught gothic fiction. And so... Oh, nice. Yeah. So working with Gordon, they combined the first and second of Lovecraft's stories. So it's called From the Dark and the Plague Demon. The remaining ones, by the way, are Six Shots by Moonlight, The Scream of the Dead, The Horror from the Shadows, and The Tomb Legions. Oh, wow. Great titles. Yeah. But they took those, those two stories, they combined them into one hour, and chose you know, to update it to a modern time rather than make it a period piece. I think that's a good choice. I could imagine this as a period piece, but also this helps to distinguish it from something like Frankenstein. Yeah, I also think that that would just increase your budget because you've got to then like worry a lot more of the set details and the costuming and things like that. Yeah, I I could see it. Also, I could see doing it on the cheap and being like, yeah, that's a castle wall. It's definitely not a fake painted brick facade. Well, I guess they all worked in theaters. They probably had wardrobe, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so special effects technician Bob Greenberg repeatedly told Gordon that the only market for horror was in feature films. So like, don't do TV. And it, right. again, like, you know, Tales from the Crypt wasn't a thing yet. So mm-hmm. he introduced Gordon to producer Brian Usna. And everyone, if you don't know Brian, I actually am more familiar with Usna's work than I am with Gordon's work because I've right. seen The Dentist. And like, they both worked on Disney's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which was supposed to be less of a Disney movie when they were working on it. <laughs> mm. But um, Gordon showed Yuzna the script for the pilot episode, and he liked it, but then he was like, yeah, okay, but dude, you gotta shoot this in Hollywood because of all these special effects involved. Right. Also, at this time, the board of the theater in Chicago hated that they were doing a horror film, thought it was, like, too trashy. So Gordon (laughs) took a leave of absence from the theater, and they were like, cool, we're gonna go to Hollywood, I guess. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, it's funny to hear stuff like that, right? Because, you know, you said, oh, horror so hot right now. But Mm -hmm. that's a refrain that we literally say every year. You know, everyone always acts surprised when a horror movie breaks out. And it's like, no, it's because the appetite is always there. The appetite has always been there. But some people are just so narrow-minded. Yeah. Well, and it's also just like it's a, it, horror goes through cycles. So I think it, be, because right. there's so many different subgenres, every time one has a new peak, it feels like it's new. Even though, no, it's still horror. Like, horror has always been good. It's just like, what, well, at this time, we're in the middle of a slasher boom. Right. You know what? That's a good point. But nevertheless... Gordon takes a leave of absence, they go to Hollywood, and he's like, cool, well, then we can add the third story and make it a 90-minute feature, you know, 30, 30, 30. And 
Yuzu's reply was, oh, no, no, we're going to do all six of the stories. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, sure. Yeah. Do we have a budget for that? Anybody? Hello? <laughs> I, I did read through the plot. And like, you know, this film does take a lot of liberties. I'll go through a couple of them in a minute. But, you know, they take a lot of aspects or set pieces from the mm -hmm. stories and incorporate them into their own original story. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, and actually, um, one of the stories is almost more straightforwardly adapted in Bride of Reanimator. Ah, uh, Okay. But yeah, and so their approach, though, was as such. Lovecraft pushed the genre in literary terms, so they knew to, to do it justice, they had to push the genre in filmic terms. They didn't want to hold back. And I, I do think in that regard, they, they succeed. I mean, look at the legacy of this film. Right. Yeah. I mean, the practical effects alone guarantee that people remember this title. Well, and they did their homework. So every weekend they would go over to use this house and watch different horror movies that had been made over the past 10 years. And with the aim <laughs> of we have to outdo everything we're watching. Holy shit. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I mean, I, Evil Dead was in there because I did see a quote where they were like, you know, we are doing something that's in the vein of Evil Dead, but like hopefully with like a maybe better production values. And I think they're specifically right. referring to the first film because two yeah. hadn't come out yet, I don't think right and and you can see it you know like this definitely has a more polished feel than evil dead but it doesn't have that same like gorilla. I mean, sam raimi was pushing it in terms of the way he was using the camera whereas i can't say that about gordon's direction but yeah. i would say the set pieces are more consistently bonkers here Ooh, and i have a good reason for you for gordon's direction but i'll hold off on that for a second okay <laughs> i'm intrigued so, yeah, they tried to be as faithful to Lovecraft as they could, but because Lovecraft does leave a lot to the imagination and very rarely features women in his stories. <laughs> Misogyny. Uh, the only woman mentioned at all by Lovecraft in the story um, is Herbert West's landlady in, in the second of six stories. Right. But, um, yeah, so they created the character of Dan Kane to use as an audience surrogate because the, the story is told from a nameless narrator. So that's kind of who Dan is because he is our surrogate. Um, sure. And then they add Megan Halsey to give the female presence to the film. But her dad, like the Dean, is a character in this story as well. Oh, OK. OK. So they get a budget of one million dollars and all of this money belongs to Brian Yuzna. It's like his personal money that he had saved up and borrowed from other people. And oh, my God. <laughs> but, but, but he liked it that way because he was like, well, if it's all my money, there's literally no one to answer to. So we can do whatever the right. fuck we want on this movie. I mean, yes, obviously. It's just, yeah, the the idea of giving over that much personal mm -hmm. wealth for something where you have no guarantees you might ever get the money back. Oh, so scary. It's a, I mean, look, you know, I don't have a million dollars. No. A million dollars just to throw at something and be like, yeah, sure, maybe it'll do well, maybe it won't. I mean, I guess that's why they did their homework. And, you know, it sounds like he knew, okay, this is what's sellable. Don't do TV, do features, come to Hollywood, make it right, and so on. But still, yeah. scary. <laughs> well, and unlike the last two films we've covered on this podcast, there was a lot of effort put into this movie. Wow, Trey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. There was a lot of thought put into the making of this movie. Maybe consideration for what the audience would like and want. Yeah, yeah. But Yuza had also made a distribution deal with Charles Band's Empire Pictures. And uh, there it is. <laughs> this was the precursor to Full Moon Features. So Empire oh, went okay. bankrupt in 88, and then Full Moon was born out of it. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he made the distribution deal with, with Empire Pictures in return for post-production services. However, after viewing the initial dailies, Empire became involved in the actual production because they were like, holy shit, like this could be good. Right. 
this is going to make money. Yes. But then, um, Charles Band made a number of suggestions, including swapping out the original cinematographer, Bob Evinger, who shot all of the first week of footage, for Mac Alberg. And he it wasn't like, oh, we're firing this guy. It was more so... So because Stuart Gordon came from the world of the theater and not mm-hmm. film, he wasn't always in tune or like aware of like what things were looking like in the camera monitor. And so Oh, was it a little stagey? It was, but like okay, like so there's an anecdote they give in this in this documentary where, you know, A, Mac Albrook has an accent and all of them are imitating his accent because I guess he would just get used to like saying things a certain way. But Aww. he'd be like, oh, well, um, yeah, 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 you could do it that way. But, um, uh, you know, come look at the camera, the monitor, because it looks like shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. But it's because he's saying, you know, yeah, it looks good when you're looking at it like in real life, like you would right. at a theater. But when you actually put it on a camera, like the image looks different and looks worse. And so right. what could have been a very antagonistic relationship actually became very hard. Harmonious. It was almost Mac Alberg kind of training Gordon in the ways of camera while still letting him be the director of the film. Mm. I mean, this is one of the reasons why if you're a first time filmmaker or a novice, it's so helpful to surround yourself with somebody who, A, yes, you can collaborate with, but also who is going to teach you the tricks of the trade, right? I'm thinking back to Clive Barker and Hellraiser, where Mm -hmm. he basically said, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Sure, I'll get some books out, but also everyone on this set is going to be stacked and the best they can possibly be because I need this to turn out well. I'm so glad you brought up Clive Barker and Hellraiser because it's the exact thing I thought of when I was hearing this story. Well, it doesn't hurt that both of these films are, to a certain extent, like low-budget cheapies, but they become cult classics in part because of their just fantastical execution, like technically speaking. Yeah, and to be fair, like, Mac Alberg hadn't done a ton of cinematography before this, but he had shot the movies Trancers and Ghoulies for Empire. Oh, Ghoulies! Ah. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, uh, he also would go on to shoot both Brady Bunch movies. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> the horror to comedy pipeline continues i love it because well, honestly you can see a lot of like similarities in like like again like that that aesthetic of brady bunch to reanimator i feel like what oh my god what it's, it's bright and colorful <laughs> okay shark yes i will give you that <laughs> anyway so the special effects team was made up of john nowlin and anthony dublin and they had six weeks to get everything together in the lead up to the film Oh my god, six weeks? Yes. And Holy so fuck. and they had a strict budget. You know, we're working with a million dollars of Brian Yuza's money here. <laughs> I'm just imagining Brian Yuza walking on set and being like, and here's twenty dollars for you. I'm going to need you to paint me a set. I'm going to give you a hundred dollars. I need you to go out and get food for catering. <laughs> Well, and so they were protégés of famed makeup effects artist John Carl Buechler, who um, had done a ton of makeup effects, but we talked about him a lot because he directed Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood. Oh, okay. Not our favorite, but it's when fun. you see, well, when you see the special effects, that film is actually quite a bit better. Well, and so apparently it was his entire makeup class who like, so it wasn't like even like graduate students. These were students of makeup effects classes that were like doing the effects on this film. Wow. Okay. Hmm. So they looked at anatomy books and autopsy footage to make sure everything would be as realistic as possible. Um, they took the cast and crew to the L.A. County morgue so everyone Ooh. could get used to like the environment of what it was like to be around a bunch of dead bodies. Wow. Okay. 
But because Gordon and most of the actors involved had a background in theater, they also rehearsed for a whole week before production started. And I don't even think, because mm. Barbara Crampton talks about how like she didn't even get paid, but she didn't care because she values the rehearsal process, which most films don't give you. Well, and I mean, we're going to talk about it when we get to the plot, but this film is kind of wild in terms of once it gets going, it just never looks back. So knowing exactly how to play these characters when everything is operating at an 11 for what feels like two thirds of the film, Mm -hmm. I imagine being able to go through the motions and get comfortable with all of that would be really important. Well, I think it's also important because acting for the stage and acting for the screen are two completely different acting styles. You know, for the stage, you have to be bigger because you're playing literally to the back of the crowd whereas mm-hmm. the screen you have to like tone it down and because this was basically a bunch of theater troupe kids i think it does a, a service to the film because everything is larger than life in this movie mm-hmm. but still bit for the screen exactly so yeah the shoot begins on november 28th of 1984 um they had a six week shooting schedule so they did do a few reshoots after an initial two hour and 15 minute long cut oh. of the film was put together. <laughs> oh, boy. But the biggest reshoot they did was the opening scene, the, the prologue where we meet Herbert West. And the reasoning behind this was using the thought that the audience would not be ready for the tone of the movie if they didn't get a taste of it up front. Yeah, when I heard that the sequence wasn't quite the same, I think that they made a really wise decision to include it in this way. I agree. And obviously they did cut more of this movie down, but more on that in a bit. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So for the score, uh, Gordon wanted something Bernard Herrmann-esque. And so he hired Richard Band, Charles's brother, to do that. And, you know, if you watch this movie, um, you will probably think, wow, that sure does sound like the theme from Psycho. A hundred percent. And the thing is this, that that was obviously intentional. He didn't just rip it off. It was meant mm-hmm. to be a parody it, to go with the horror comedy tone of the film. But <sighs> admittedly, I am not like a super like I'm not a music expert in the slightest. We all know this. Um, right. But while, yes, when you're hearing the score, it's like, yes, that's clearly the Psycho score. Mm-hmm. There's enough subtle differences to where it's not an exact replica and you know he used bernard horman's score as a base and modified the theme but it is not the same score okay yeah i definitely just have techno psycho theme in my notes it was so funny so before i did the research and i I had no idea charles band was involved with this at all when i was watching it and in my head i was like this sounds like the psycho score mixed with a full mm-hmm. moon feature. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Look at you go. But it was so funny because then I saw Richard Band and I was like, oh, Richard Band, wouldn't that be so funny if he was related to Charles Band? Oh, it's their brothers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hollywood, it's a small town, baby. So this film actually premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. and Wild. Okay, the audience, apparently, at this premiere was amazing, to the point where by the end, when the, when the theme music was going again, the mm-hmm. audience was stomping their feet to the beat of the score. I love that, and also not at all what I would expect you to say about... Can? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Notoriously stodgy, 12-minute applause for very serious drama audiences. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, okay. It, well, it also won the Critics Award there, so critics were in a really good mood that year. Huh. Either that or it's a testament to the power of this movie. Like, so much about the film should not work, and yet, mm-hmm. surprisingly enough, it really, really does. I agree. But after this, you know, they were like, hey, we're get- we got to get it released. Um, but 
they knew. They knew if they took this to the MPAA, it was going to get an X rating. Right. So Yuzna didn't want anyone telling them what to, what they could and couldn't do. Because in his words, for the MPAA, whatever works the best is what they make you take out. <laughs> uh, probably true. Yeah. So they did actually release this movie in theaters unrated. Uh, there was no MPA rating associated with this film. But because of this, they couldn't market it very well, as right. many media outlets had policies against promoting unrated films. So there was no big ad campaign. Ooh, so they're banking on word of mouth. Mm -hmm. But also they had a limited theater account because a lot of theaters wouldn't show an unrated film. Yeah. Yeah. So... The official premiere for the public happened at the Paramount in L.A. across the street from Groman's Chinese Theater, and it was given a quote-unquote wide release on October 18th, 1985 in 129 theaters. Right, and this is where I remind folks that the times of films being released in 3,000 and 4,000 theaters, that's still relatively new. That was something that we really started to do in like the mid-2000s, so it's not yeah. actually that rare that they only had a couple hundred theaters. Yeah, but I mean, like, a normal quote-unquote film would have closer to a thousand theaters. Right. But that being said, in those 129 theaters, it grossed half a million dollars its opening weekend and went on to Whoa. gross total across its entire theatrical run, two million dollars. So it did double its production budget. There we go. There we go. I mean, I'm looking at this and saying I'm imagining that the video rental market is where it's going mm -hmm. to make all of the money. Yeah, so here, okay, so reviews were stellar. I mean, Roger Ebert was a huge champion of this film. What? Oh my god, that man makes no sense to me. <laughs> Pauline Kale put it in her top 10 of the year. Hmm. Yeah, but you're right though, right? Like, as much as we talk about Ebert not liking horror, every now and then, every now and then, there's that one where he's like, yep, this is the one. <laughs> I mean, you can argue that Reanimator is doing dumb shit in a very smart way like this film is very savvy and it clearly does have that literary component to it even in its theme so i wonder if that's the kind of thing that these quote-unquote very serious very elite top tier film critics were responding to well and i think in even his review he said i walked out of this movie feeling invigorated like i had like a huh. burst of energy after watching this movie i can definitely see that but yeah, we're looking at a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 7.8 out of 10. And Letterboxd users have given it a 7.6 out of 10. So yay, Joe, we are not in the 3% <laughs> range of Rotten Tomatoes anymore. <laughs> and we're back, baby. Cinema! So while it made its money back, again, it wasn't really a big box office smash. And after it came out, it actually was forgotten to a certain degree. And it took a while before it became something again. And that was, as you alluded to, the home video market. But... Yeah. On that note, in early 1986, a re-edited version of the film was submitted to the MPAA, and it did get the R rating. Oh, okay. Weirdly enough, this version runs nine and a half minutes longer than the unrated wow. cut. Yeah, so the R-rated cut is 93 minutes to the unrated cut's 86 minutes. Okay, wow. This R-rated cut has much of the gore edited out, um, replaced with various scenes which have been deleted for pacing purposes. Sure including a subplot involving Dr. Hill hypnotizing several of the characters to make them more suggestible to his will, which, oh. of course, carries over more into The Bride Reanimator. Right. In this version, Dean Halsey is hypnotized early on to turn him against West, and then later hypnotized again after he has been reanimated. So he's actually hypnotizing mm. people when they're still alive. Oh, you know what? I can totally see that in the unrated version, which is the one that we're really going to be talking about today. Right. But yeah, there were moments where I thought, huh, there's some weird hypnosis stuff going on, but I don't quite understand how it works. Yeah. 
because in the version we watch, Halsey's submission is merely a result of the lobotomy he has given. Right. Yeah. Now, the unrated version, which yeah, is what we're watching and talking about today, is often labeled as the director's cut, which, strictly speaking, is false because Stuart Gordon was not allowed to determine the final cut on any version of this film. However, oh. he has expressed his preference for the unrated version over that R-rated version. Okay. Good to know. But here's the thing, Joe. There's another cut oh. of this film. <laughs> <laughs> These fucking alt cuts, man. I like. I feel like the horror genre specifically is the one that has them because every time, like every time we cover a movie, especially if it's a commentary on the Patreon, mm -hmm. I'm like, "Fuck, okay, how many versions are there, and which one are we going to talk about? Which one's readily available?" <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, folks, let's be clear. It's not like anybody's out there talking about, you know, ooh, the the international cut of the color purple, or you know, oh yeah, the unrated director's cut of wonka like none of these things are real but in horror films every fucking other week we're talking about weird cuts but that's because though the horror because of the subject matter of the genre it's like a lot of people are telling you you can't do that you can't mm -hmm. do that and so vision gets compromised 100 percent, yeah but yeah so years later a new version of this film appeared in europe that contained nearly all of the gore scenes of the unrated version as well as the dialogue scenes unique to the r-rated version more controversially, however, this version had substantially restructured the story by placing these scenes in different parts of the film, as well as using various uh, replacement dialogue in order to avoid duplication in the narrative. And this version is called the integral version, and it oh. runs about 105 minutes, so an hour and 45. So it's 20 minutes longer than the unrated cut. That's a lot. Yeah. And here's the thing, y'all. The reason we are not covering this one, because I actually would love to see this. Sure. It was a European version. However, Arrow Video did release a limited release Blu-ray that included both the unrated and integral cuts uh, uh, back in 2017. And it is now out of print. Uh, you can course. buy it for $200 if you're curious. Oh but God. <laughs> so if you go to Arrow and you get this movie, it only has the unrated cut. It does not have the integral cut included. But um, right. that's fine. You know, I'm still curious about it. But the unrated cuts, you know, Gordon's preferred version. So there you go. There we go. Okay. Well, I, I feel fine covering it then. But yeah, I will say as much as we both enjoy a lot of the special features that we get on some of these zero discs, you know, we were both physical media collectors, we will shed from the rooftops because guess what? Uh, if you're looking at things online streaming, they just disappear all the fucking time. Look at what's happening yeah. with Max all the time. But uh, with that said, I would love it if Arrow would try to make some of these weird discs just a little bit more either affordable or easier to track down because even stuff like when we were talking about the hellraiser scarlet box set it's like nope that's a collector's item we printed x many numbers of copies you can't find anymore and even when we did the work print of hellraiser mm -hmm. bloodline that set is already out of print like yep. it was a collector's edition and i'm like folks come on I, I agree and understand your frustration because I feel the exact same because it's lesson learned, right? Because you missed the Scarlet Box set and then you were like, well, shit. <laughs> yeah, like I immediately had to order that new one because I knew the same thing was going to happen. Lo and behold, it did. Yeah, well, meanwhile, I've got my Scarlet Box set, which is has everything that that Quartet of Torment has, except for the Hellraiser 4 stuff. So I just have two gorgeous box sets of Hellraiser 3 and Hellraiser 1 through 4. <laughs> you know what? I love that for you. Love it for it's you fine um but yeah you know as i say the, the legacy you know we've got two sequels to this and in 2011 there was a musical adaptation that Stuart gordon was directly involved in so i kind of love this trend for these like gory horror movies of the 80s thinking of this and evil dead of course where they just become musicals mm -hmm. 
Yes. And honestly, we're recording this uh, a little bit after the Mean Girls musical came out, but I would love it if we started doing film versions of horror movie musicals. Dude, I would shit myself if we got the Evil Dead musical in theaters. Right? But see, okay, here's the thing with that, though. I think mm -hmm. we talk about all the time, you know, general audiences are not prone to liking musicals in like just regularly. Yeah. I think the horror community is even less so. Yeah, folks, if you want to hear a longer version of that conversation, we did talk about it when we were talking about Anna and the Apocalypse last year. Yep, I'm sure we might have discussed it too when we talked about um, either Stage Fright, uh, the, the 2000s one, or Phantom of the mm. Paradise. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. But um, yeah, so th that's Reanimator Joe. What happens in this movie? Okay, folks, uh, I'm going to give credit to Rain Petrie for their article, The Homoerotic History of Reanimator Part 1, right off the top, because I'm going to be bringing in this individual quite a bit in this. It's a really good read, pretty quick. Shocking no one, there's quite a lot about the queerness in this movie. Mm -hmm. I think there's also a couple that had some interesting trans readings, but that might be for some of the later films. Also, as much as I love Medium, they often end up doing the paywall thing. So this one is thankfully free. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's dive mm -hmm. in. We open in Zurich, Switzerland, as a group of people break into an office and discover Herbert West, who is played absolutely brilliantly by yeah. Jeffrey Combs, and he has horribly reanimated his mentor, Dr. Hans Gruber, who is played by <laughs> Al Berry. The fact that this comes out before Die Hard is so funny to me. <laughs> right? I mean, this is not a character in the film. We will hear about Dr. Gruber a couple more times, but this is the only scene he's really in. And right away, you know, as you mentioned in the production history, this scene is telling you everything you need to know about the gore, the comedy, the zaniness of all of this, because this dude just goes bleh. And, like, the lady's face gets covered in blood, and it's all great. And so because this was the reshoot, though, you know, they didn't have their, their whole special effects team. So this was Buchler coming in on his own and doing it himself. So, like, the bulging eyes on Dr. Gruber, which are a fantastic effect. Ooh, looks so good. Yeah, that's all Buchler. Oh, okay. Good on him. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Reputation earned. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So just in case you didn't realize that this was basically a mad scientist, Frankenstein kind of story, we have Herbert proclaiming, I gave him life when they say, you killed him. <laughs> and then we cut to our techno psycho credits. It's such a perfect lead into the credits. I mean, music aside, which I, I do love, like this version of the score, um, mm -hmm. but the visuals, like with the colors on display in this main title sequence are yeah. so fun. Great. Yeah. Neon. Again, we are really setting a mood, a tone for the film to come. And I love that this movie is comfortable using neon. I mean, sure, it is the 80s. So it's very much on brand for what's going on in the culture. But I'm not used to seeing that outside of something like, say, Return of the Living Dead. Well, and because Wes serum is made basically of luminol, you know, what you put in glow sticks, I have to mm -hmm. imagine that was probably the uh, the reason why they decided to go with that that specific look for these credits. I love it, though. Every time mm -hmm. we see that reagent in a syringe, I'm just like, ooh, I feel like I should cosplay as Herbert West for Halloween this year. Okay, like, I'm jumping all the way to the end here, but, like, one of my favorite shots is actually when we black out at the end of the movie, and we, but mm -hmm. it's only the glow stick, the, the serum that's left, and we see him injecting it as the screen fills black. Right. Oh, I love it. It's so it. good. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, so after the credits, we resume. Only this time we are at Miskatonic University in Arkham, Massachusetts. And folks, just in case you didn't know, uh, you can take classes at the Miskatonic Institute, which I'm gathering is probably named in part after this and also Lovecraft's work. Because Arkham is also not a real city, right? I mean, I wouldn't know. <laughs> geography? U.S. geography? <laughs> Sir, no, uh, don't look at me. Okay, no, Arkham is a fictional city situated in Massachusetts. There you go. <laughs> okay, there we go. So we are introduced to audience surrogate medical student Dan Kane, who is played by Bruce Abbott. And I think that Abbott probably has the hardest role in this movie. I'm not going to say he's a bland protagonist because I do think he's really vital to a lot of the, I mean, obviously the queer relationship that we're going to read the film through, but he is active. He's not boring, but also he's just, he's never the most exciting character. No, but I agree with you where like, I don't think he has boring protagonist syndrome because Look, he has his little traits, you know, his quirk, which is, mm -hmm. oh, he cannot stand losing a patient. Like, he will just right. keep trying to resuscitate them. But he also goes on a journey. Like, he has an arc in this film as oh, he yeah. gets sucked into Herbert West's world, which makes him way more interesting than just a final girl who's, like, standing around while her friends get picked off until, you know, she has to escape the killer at the very end. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I love that you said that he's got an arc because really, that's what the film is interested in exploring. It's not just you know, ooh, what does this guy do when Herbert West comes into his life? It's like, right, he and Herbert West are like two sides of the same coin. You know, Herbert's coming at it from a very different place. But by the end of the film, you understand, oh, Dan's actually not that dissimilar. No, to the point where if Barbara Crampton wasn't in this movie, um, I would fully believe that Herbert and Dan were about to fuck. Oh, I mean... West wants it real bad, the whole film. West wants it real bad. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to bring in Petra here just because the combination of the two introductory scenes. So the first one, pre-credits for Herbert West, and then this one where, yes, Dan can't let go of this woman that is eventually declared DOA by Dr. Herod, who is, as you mentioned, played by Carolyn Purdy Gordon. Fantastic. Love her. Yeah, great, great. But um, Petrie notes that there's this visual parallel that we're going to see throughout the course of the film, and it's how we can visually connote Herbert West and Dan Kane together. So they cross paths, they attempt to accomplish the same feat together, even though they're separately shown desperately trying to bring the dead back to life. And both of them end up getting stopped and then chastised for their actions by a female doctor in both of these scenes. And if you look at the article, you can actually see even the framing, like the composition of these shots mm. is very visually similar. So we're immediately positioning Herbert West and Dan Kane together almost as one. It's interesting, though, because Bruce Abbott gets top billing, although I guess because uh, Jeffrey Combs gets the and Jeffrey Ooh, Combs as yes. Herbert West. <laughs> You always want the end, folks. It's the big one. Best one, yeah. <laughs> okay, so Dan chats with security guard Mace, who is played by Jerry Black, before he leaves the corpse of this person that he was unable to revive in the morgue. We should note, the morgue is very, very full, and that will become important as the film progresses. <laughs> So while he's there, Dan observes Dr. Carl Hill, who is played by David Gale, in a very tricky balancing act performance, and he is burning a hole in a corpse's head. What do you mean by a tricky balancing act performance? Well, 
because we don't know that he is the villain early on, right. he seems egocentric, narcissistic, but he's also a very accomplished, very celebrated doctor. And then at a certain point, you realize, oh, he's a lecherous creep. You know, I love yeah. the reveal that he's basically stalking Megan and doing everything he can to ruin her relationship with Dan. But mm. then also he becomes full comedy in the back half of the movie. And I think that's a really tricky balancing act. You know what? I agree with you. I, I to say nothing of the fact that he has to do a lot of his stuff in the last act um, as mm. a severed head. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> which i feel is the part i always remember about this movie is like his head in the tray doing weird you know eyebrow raises and that kind of stuff and i don't think i gave the film enough credit for not just how challenging the effects must have been but also the performance he's actually giving so i mean again i'm not going to talk about it at length but like in the climax when all the zombies wake up mm -hmm. gordon talks about how they, that was such a hectic day but they were just shooting as much as they could different angles and whatever and they were right. like we'll just fix it in the editing room which is <laughs> probably why that initial cut was over two hours long right also i love the idea <laughs> shoot as much as you can we'll fix it in the edit yep <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah so we see him experimenting on this corpse and right away my sort of red flag radar goes off because he's just kind of doing this out in the open and it's it doesn't seem safe it doesn't seem sanitary, sanitary. Or <laughs> it, it's just it's a very odd thing and he seems to be taking a certain gleeful pleasure in it yeah also that that shot with the q-tip in the forehead is gross it's super gross yeah <laughs> So we're also introduced to Dean Allen Halsey, who is played by Robert Sampson, and he's obviously the dean of this. It's both college, but also, I think, a working hospital. Yeah. And he introduces them to West, who seems primed to be a star pupil. He's here, you know, representing Dr. Gruber. It doesn't seem like anybody knows that Dr. Gruber is dead yet. So obviously, West <laughs> beat it the fuck out of Switzerland very quickly. <laughs> But Wes is not shy about dismissing Hill's derivative and outdated brain death research. So the two men get off to a very confrontational relationship right off the bat. Oh, and it just gets worse and worse. Like every scene they share together, it just builds. <laughs> I do love it, though. Oh, it's so fun. <laughs> Again, like watching him just like constantly tear this man down, like take him down a peg. It's mm -hmm. delightful. Yes, absolutely. So outside, we see that Dan is soliciting for a roommate on the kind of communal corkboard. This is when we're introduced to his girlfriend, Megan, played by Barbara Crampton. And then we immediately go back to his place so that, sorry, oh, I guess it is his place. Why is her cat there? I have no idea. Okay. Uh, well, no, no, maybe, well, because maybe it's a cat that they like share together, you know? I guess. It's like, oh, I guess if we can't get married, we might as well have a black cat that'll scratch your back every time we fuck. Because well, they're also only not getting married because her dad is like very like, no sex before marriage type thing. Exactly that. Yes. What do we think of Barbara Crampton and specifically Megan in this movie? So I remember thinking on the first watch that she felt a bit superfluous like she didn't really have a great role and i did appreciate her a lot more on this rewatch like she is very much the object of everyone's affection you know a lot of things happen around megan because of megan but i don't think i was giving her quite enough credit for being 
mostly an active agent. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. I actually think that Megan as a role is... It's not superfluous because we're working with this kind of love triangle here, you know, between oh, yeah. Megan and Dan and Herbert. Mm-hmm. But there are definitely scenes where I'm kind of like, get out of this movie. Like, you're, you're not as interesting to me as, as these two men on screen right now. But right. I do think Crampton imbues Megan with a really, like, like just a... Uh, it's warm. Here's the thing. She represents the humanity, right? She's grounding yeah. these men. So every time she looks at Herbert West and says, what the fuck is this guy doing in our lives? It brings us back to say, okay, this is wild and campy and gory as fuck, but also we're still telling a relatively human story. But that's also why, like, I mean, I think the the rehearsals did such a good job for them because her relationship with Dan is... Oh. I think it so raised very, in. it's very, because the, the first scene where they're in bed together, I was like, this feels like a very real, like, couple just mm-hmm. in bed hanging out. And I, look, I love that we are not doing the whole, like, hey, let's hold the, the covers up over your mm-hmm. titties, because that's what people do in real life. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I actually really appreciate how kind of frank the movie is with mm-hmm. nudity. I mean... Obviously, we're not seeing full dong or anything, but we are seeing people in various states of undress. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we see Barbara Crampton fully naked. But even in the climax where we've got corpses who would, yes, be totally nude attacking Mm -hmm. people. It's like, yeah, this is exactly how it would happen. And it never like, again, even though, like, you know, as we'll get to Crampton's big scene later, like the characters are lecherous towards her, specifically Mm -hmm. Hill. But the movie never feels lecherous, even with this first scene with her in in bed. Oh, I I much prefer the scene. I think the other one does feel lecherous to me, but it's very much by design. So I agree with you. It's not necessarily the film or Gordon being like, oh, look at this hot young bud. It's more, ooh, we're meant to feel so creeped out by the fact that her father disrobes her for this gross ass doctor. Yeah. Uh, yes. Thank you. Th- that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Okay, so this is where we get some exposition about Dean Halsey being very overprotective, not exactly supportive of their plans to marry but we very much as you said get the sense that they're a real couple they love each other they do have plans to stick together in the future he just has to nail down that medical degree (laughs) sorry bud you're not gonna get that (laughs) (laughs) definitely not getting that and the agent of chaos who's going to prevent you from doing that aka trickster tempter figure has showed up at your door to rent the room <laughs> uh also i don't know if this is important but dan has a talking heads poster above his bed and it's like the only piece of art on his walls yeah i don't know enough to know whether that's significant i think that might have just been that was very popular at the time joe i had to look up what talking heads was i didn't even know it was a ban oh okay <laughs> <laughs> When in doubt, if it's not a movie, it's probably a band. It's probably a band. (laughs) (laughs) You're so cute. Yeah. (laughs) So Petrie thinks it's quite significant that the introduction of Herbert West into Dan's personal life, the very first interaction that they have is when Dan is essentially nude. He's holding the bedsheets around him. But, you know, it's kind of like, all right, sexy time. And then Herbert West comes into the room and... 
there's friction between Herbert and Megan immediately, immediately in the same way that he had with Hill, but it's not professional criticism here. This is very much woman get out of my way so I can get to that naked man. But, but she's up to the task though, because she even questioned him. She's like, why did you even leave Switzerland? <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, she wants answers. She wants yeah. receipts. She wants all of the evidence. But their tête-à-tête here is great, and I think it helps to establish Megan as something more than just, oh, she's the dean's daughter, or she's a pretty face. It's like, oh no, she will fight Herbert West because she doesn't trust him. She has an agency, and even though she does become the damsel by the end of the film, and I mean, Mm -hmm. look. I'm not going to lie. I hate that she dies at the end of this movie. I actually legitimately hate that. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Okay. I like it because to me, it's a bit ballsy. Like, I really don't think we're going to do it. And the fact that we do is shocking. Let me here. Let me let me modify that. It's not a critique against the film. I have no issue with that. I just like her character. So I don't want her to die at the end of this movie. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, um, which funnily enough, so she's the only one that did not return for Bride of Reanimator because she was on, um, I think, Young and the Restless at the time. Oh, okay. But the whole the whole plot of Bride of Reanimator is that they have Megan's heart, and they learn that Herbert Serum can now reanimate body parts, not just sure. whole bodies. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to Frankenstein a bride with Megan's heart. Oh, that's kind of sweet. While Doctor Hill's severed head is going around trying to hypnotize people. <laughs> that's less sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the other reasons that I really buy into Megan and Dan's relationship in these early scenes is when West is saying, you know, I've got my stuff right here. I can move in right now. Do you want me to move in? Hey, I'm already looking at the basement. And Megan is giving these looks at Dan like, let's not right now. We can put a pause in this. We don't have to agree to anything. And Dan is such an oblivious buffoon. He just cares. (laughs) It's like, oh, that's every couple I know. Mm hmm. What did Timely Jones say about uh, Jim Carrey? I do not sanction his buffoonery. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just that. <laughs> um, and of course, when Dan ends up caving, the thing that Wes says, he just kind of looks at Megan and he's like, done. So Petrie says, well, Meg cannot live with Dan until they're married. Wes shows up and immediately fulfills her role by becoming his roommate instead, even gloating about this victory to Meg's face by smugly repeating what Dan had said to him when finalizing their deal. (laughs) Roommates in quotation marks. 100%. It's like that meme. He never married. He lived with his longtime roommate, and they raised cats and wrote letters. (laughs) Megan might as well be his girlfriend who lives in Canada at this point. Right, yes. Although, wait, what do y'all say? Do y'all say girlfriend who lives in the United States? (laughs) Yeah, we just pick some other country. So in class, we get to watch the students watch as Dr. Hill removes the scalp of a cadaver. Great special effects here. Oh, and this is this is uh, this is a guy on the table, too. This isn't just a dummy head. Oh, is it? OK. Mm-hmm. Huh. I mean, they're not actually like, you know, pulling a scalp off. It's makeup. Sure, sure. But... <laughs> so Dr. Hill takes this opportunity to reiterate his thesis about brain death, which is that the human brain can remain active or functional for up to six to 12 minutes and herbert west is such a fucking diva in this scene that he just starts snapping pencils to upset dr hill to the point where we end class early so we can just yell at each other publicly i love this this is all all, all the while hill is holding this brain in his hands too (laughs) yes (laughs) 
everybody's got brains on their hands in this movie. I do love that line, though, that Mr. West, I suggest you get yourself a pen. Mm-hmm. It's a great <laughs> clapback. <laughs> so we go to a celebratory dinner at Dean Halsey's house, and this is because Dr. Hill has been given a new grant. It's the biggest one in the college's history. So we know that Dr. Hill is legit, or at least he's being recognized by his peers as such, which is probably part of the reason why he's so threatened by a young whippersnapper like Herbert West. <laughs> yep. So this is also where we get the hint that something is very weird about his relationship with Megan because he doesn't approve of her dating Dan and he's comfortable saying this to Dean Halsey. Which is weird, right? Because it feels like you're showing your cards. Mm-hmm. He seems very candid, but he couches it under this praise for Megan. You know, he talks about the obsession of all who fall under her spell. And yeah. clearly he's talking about himself, but I'm sure to a father, it's probably coming off as what a special darling girl. She's going to go and do great things, but it's also a bright, a bright, upstanding young lass. Yeah, yeah. But of course, we all look at it and say, no, dude's fucking creepy. What is yeah, he doing scamming on your daughter? Yeah, absolutely. I, I wrote in my notes, he offers this weird toast that is very creepy. <laughs> yes, I'm a creepy too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Dan comes over for a study date with Megan, and she's upset because she didn't want Herbert West to move in. She feels like he's always around. He doesn't understand what he's doing with the door closed. Masturbation joke, insert your own. And then we realize, where's the cat? We haven't seen Rufus in a little while. Lo and behold, this feline is frosty. He is in the fridge. And Wes discovers them, and I love that he is more offended that they have been going through his stuff in his locked room, as opposed to the fact that, oh yeah, I definitely got your dead cat in my fridge. And, okay, he killed this cat, right? I love that the film doesn't tell us, but we very much believe that to be the truth. Yeah, that's how I took it, but yeah, I I, I agree, I like that they don't tell us. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, cat's dead, everyone. But it, well, I was about to say, at least we don't see it get killed, but mm-hmm. we do see something do. else. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to lie. I think that the animatronics for the cat when it gets reanimated in the basement is not great. It's not very convincing. It looks very robotic to me. But the movements are so deeply upsetting, particularly when Herbert says, oh, yeah, it's because its spine is broken. Oh, that, that, like, <laughs> e. um, this is a very famous scene from this mm-hmm. movie. I mean, I think if you just say the cat scene, people know what you're talking about. I love the lighting in this scene because oh, mm-hmm. we have like the hanging light that gets knocked. And so, I mean, I don't know if they use any other light or like any kind of natural light or whatever, but like we're going from like pitch black to light as this thing switches. And I think mm-hmm. it adds a really good amount of atmosphere to the set piece. Oh, it's fantastic. It feels like a really savvy, low budget Mm -hmm. attempt to do something stylistic, but it works so effectively. It also reminds me of uh, Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, where we've got the mom going wild on the love interest in the shack and she hits the light bulb and it goes swinging, which I think is also a psycho thing. So really, this is we watched our movies. We did our homework. We're doing a gentle homage. But this feels 
very much its own thing at the same time. Well, but what I like about it is, hey, one of my favorite, like, experiences that I have when I'm watching a movie is when something is, like, just out of vision or it's hidden by a light trick or an Mm -hmm. object or whatever, and I'm sitting in my seat, like, moving my head as if it will change the view in the screen so Mm -hmm. I can see what I'm looking for. And so... In this scene, the sound design is also key because we actually don't see this cat while they're looking for it. Um, We just hear it. And it was one of those things where I wish I had a surround sound system because I would – I bet you if you play this in a theater, Mm -hmm. it would be – like you you would hear the cat coming from different speakers. And I love that. Well, bitch, you've got an Alamo Drafthouse programming gig now. Why don't you throw this on the big screen and see you how know it what? plays? It, it'll go in there one day. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure they've screened Reanimator several times. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah. This is definitely the kind of movie where I would love to see it with a big crowd of people who are totally into the film. Not saying it doesn't play well by yourself, but, you know, me watching this in the middle of the day on mm-hmm. my regular ass tv it's like this is good but if i had a bunch of people hooting and hollering and getting into this film i bet you it plays like gangbusters yeah absolutely hardcore agree so one other thing that we should comment about with all of these scenes is you know dan is actually pretty upset obviously megan is very upset but somewhat suspicious of herbert the whole basement thing is the two of them basically being manly men and taking care of the problem. So we're going to have to track down this cat and kill it a second time and so on. And Petrie makes note of not just the sort of physical distance between the men. So a lot of the time in the action sequences, you can see Herbert West sort of hiding behind Dan in the way that a damsel in distress might like the framing of it is very similar to what you would expect Megan to do behind Dan during a scary moment. Mm -hmm. But also Herbert is very cognizant of the emotional damage. So he comforts Dan about saying, you know, oh, I know you were really fond of the cat, but he's very snappish with Megan. So, you know, if we're going to look at Herbert as a queer villain, this is very much he doesn't get along with a woman and he's standoffish and snappish, whereas the object of his affection, his male roommate, he's comforting. He wants to try to be close to physically. Well, and I will pull in a quote from Petrie then as well, because what we have here is, you know, when he's talking about like because uh, like, Dan's like with the cat, why does it make that noise? And Herbert's response is birth is always painful. And yeah. what Petrie says is by Herbert describing Dan's cat Rufus's reanimation as a birth, it establishes the two men as the fathers of their creations, fulfilling mm-hmm. Meg's role sexually in terms of reproduction. Ultimately, this establishes a pattern of behavior of Dan choosing Herbert over Meg throughout the film, a pattern yep. only disrupted by the very end of the story. And even then, not exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. A lot of the things I was sensing are much more eloquently stated in Petrie's dissection of the film. I agree. I agree. So this is also the point where Herbert is more or less recruiting, like actively trying to get Dan on his side. You've seen what the reagent can do. You should join me because you're a perfect fit for my research. We should be partners. In quotation marks. Uh Uh-huh, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) From roommates to partners to life partners. (laughs) I mean, they're in the sequel together, so... (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I have questions about how that comes together, but that's for another day. I think he's just alive. (laughs) They don't explain it. He's just alive. (laughs) Yeah, because this movie would definitely have you believe he dies. And he does die at the end of the story as well. Sure. Okay. 
So Dan is somehow convinced by all of this, even after the horrifying, okay, I guess Rufus gets to die a second and third time. Sure, let's do yeah, that. sure. But he goes to speak to Dean Halsey on his behalf and say, hey, you know, Herbert's on to something. We should definitely give him a shot. The problem is that Dean Halsey doesn't want to hear any of this. He threatens to rescind Dan's scholarship, and he kicks Herbert out of school entirely. Yeah, which I mean, I think we're not even at the halfway point of the film yet. So it's like, oh, Mm. shit, big steps. Yeah. And and I would say that this is the moment where the film takes a pivot. You know, we've already seen the results or the implications of the reagent serum. Mm -hmm. But from this point on, there is no going back. So when Dan sneaks Herbert into the morgue so that they can continue their experiments and yeah, we've got the tape recorder, we're going to try it on a fresher body and so on. Like, from this moment on, Dan is fucked. Oh, yeah. Like, it is just a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. So we find a reasonable body. We inject it with a dose. At this point, we're cross-cutting between Dean Halsey trying to find them. He leaves Megan upstairs with Dr. Herod, and he's coming down. We hear noises. We got to get out of here. Let <laughs> me just inject this corpse with a second fucking dose. Uh, and this thing just goes haywire. So um, this is that they repeat this a lot on the documentary, but this guy that plays this corpse is mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger's stunt double from The Terminator. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Because this is a thick slab of beef. Oh, I mean, when he throws that door down on the Dean, I, I actively love went, it. Oof! <laughs> it is rough. I won't like it's unexpected. You think that they're going to get caught and you obviously anticipate that Dean Halsey is probably going to be injured or maimed or die. But I don't expect him to just get trampled on this door. And then we're throwing him against the wall. We're biting off fingers. It's rough. It is is a much more exciting event than what happens to Halsey in the book. Mm. In the book, Herbert West is sent to go take care of some people who have a village that has like typhoid fever and an outbreak there. Okay. And Halsey just gets typhoid fever. And so when he dies, he gives him the serum. Oh, yeah, that's definitely way less interesting. (laughs) Also, typhoid fever. Okay, yeah, that's very much a 1900s thing. Oh, yeah, we wouldn't be doing that now. I mean, (laughs) we wouldn't be doing this in 1985. (laughs) Actually, I mean, maybe. No, I'm I'm thinking mid 80s. What would we be doing? Oh, AIDS. AIDS. Yeah, AIDS. Yep. As we say in Canada, French. (laughs) No. Okay. So, yeah, so West ends up having to dispose of this corpse by drilling it through the sternum with the bone saw, but it is too late because the Dean is dead. Okay, but this effect of the bone saw going through the chest is awesome. Mm -hmm. Oh, it looks, I mean, here's the thing. Every gory bit of this movie looks so fucking good. It's like, pick your favorite. They're all amazing. Yeah, and that's why, like, you mentioned the cat looking robotic earlier. I was like, I just didn't care. I did not care. That's fair. That's fair. To me, I think it's just the least successful one, but it's oh, hard yeah. to do animals. Yeah, that's true. Because it, 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 it's just, you know, like, the, the, the tail moving up and down, the head moving up and down, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the Dean is dead, but we've got to cover this up because, as I said, we're in a working hospital and a college, and people are going to find him. So Wes frames the death as, yes, it's an unfortunate accident, 
and also an opportunity because we've got this super fresh corpse that we can revive. Mm-hmm. So we get him up on the slab and we inject him with the reagent and uh, let's just continue this experiment. Unfortunately, this is where Megan comes in. Okay, but I love, I don't know if you clocked this, but like when mm-hmm. she gets the out of the elevator and she's at the end of, of this hall and the camera just kind of like, I don't know if it's a zoom out or if we're dollying back, but like mm-hmm. we just, we just have Megan at the end of this giant hallway as this camera does this. I think it was really cool. Yeah, this happens a couple times in the film and I notice them not so much here, but there's a couple of other moments and I love how Gordon reframes the space right because Mm -hmm. it makes all of the characters seem so small and almost insignificant like they're being dwarfed by the ramifications of what they're involved in like they're just little people i was i keep hearing i don't think he even says but i keep hearing herbert west in my head in my head saying like this is bigger than you this is bigger than just one person right Uh uh-huh yeah yeah look at all this space that we're surrounded by other people are going to come in and fill this and the bodies are just going to keep piling up that they will oh my god people do not make it out of this movie which is also shocking but for a movie that's as funny as it is right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah we're we're still very much in the oh no everyone is making terrible decisions <laughs> and especially when it's like oh we killed someone let's just reanimate them i'm not gonna lie i think i messaged you and said this feels like a better version of pet cemetery to me and you know what's funny because I, I, obviously obviously as we said this is based on a hp lovecraft book but the ending mm-hmm. specifically reminded me of pet cemetery and right. uh, it, what that book was written uh released two years before this movie came out Tabitha. <laughs> Do we have a case against Stuart Gordon? Can we sue? <laughs> they stole my story. <laughs> I mean, kind of. It feels universal in the way of scientists making bad decisions because they're playing with godlike ideals. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I mean, this one is interesting just because a body is never allowed to get cold. People just immediately start fucking around with it with this reagent at every instance. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yes, Megan is properly freaked out, but we got to Dean Halsey fast enough that he seems at least cognizant. So he knows to hide from her to disguise the fact that he is actually dead and reanimated. So we should note that when Megan comes in, (laughs) Herbert West takes the opportunity to say, damn the bitch. (laughs) You're just like, (laughs) it's so petty. (laughs) <laughs> but it, it very much feels like a oh god my romantic foil what is she doing here curses kind of deal <laughs> stop third wheeling megan more or less please let me let me stick these phallic objects into all of the people that i want to get into <laughs> so dean halsey is not okay but he's kind of faking it until he makes it this is where dan goes into shock and herbert covers him up with a sheet and reassures him that the tape recorder is safe it's a very caring compassionate it's almost something that you would do to a lover trace oh my god you don't say (laughs) (laughs) the sexual tension is palpable here with all of its gory gooey dead goodness yeah i mean i definitely think this is one of those films where we're gonna get a bunch of people who will say oh this is a bit of a reach there's nothing here nobody's making overtures there's no kissing or anything but this moment in particular yes you could say He's being kind to Dan because he cares for him, because Dan has supported him in these misadventures. But 
the level of just intimacy that we see when he drapes this the sheet over Dan it to me was like oh it's either a parent tucking a child into bed or somebody being like this is my lover this is the person well, I care the most about in this world but I will say though like knowing how homophobic Lovecraft was you know I mean he had several choice words for uh, mm-hmm. our community it makes me want to look for a queer reading even more in his material be it an adaptation 100%. or not and I, I, I mean, I get it, but I don't think a queer read. I mean, look, it's not literal slash explicit, you know, where it's like mm. you know, they're, they're not actually in love with each other. But I, I don't think it's difficult to make that read based on what we're seeing on this on the screen here. Yeah, we've definitely had films where we've had to try harder to make it fit. Yeah, this one, it's like no, it's kind of there. It's just there. <laughs> yeah. So if it doubles as a fuck you to Lovecraft, I'm all here for it. I love you. A fuck you queer reading. <laughs> So Dr. Hill is on the scene because uh, we'll learn that even just the way that his office is constructed makes me think that Dr. Hill like practically lives here. Uh, That's I mean, yeah, he's he's so lonely. He just obsesses about Megan in all of his free time anyway. Apparently. Also, uh, petition to remake this movie, but have the role of Megan played by Mathrigan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, it's really funny because her last name is Halsey. And, um, you know, uh, Cameron Diaz's character's last name in my favorite comedy, Bad Teacher, is Miss Halsey. So every time Megan, because they say Halsey so many times, I just Mm -hmm. think, Miss Halsey. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we'll remake this with Cameron Diaz in the (gasps) Megan Halsey role. Oh, my God. Uh, Cameron Diaz in the Herbert West role. Herberta. (laughs) Gender flip. I love it. I love it. Okay, so Dr. Hill is on the scene. He convinces Megan that he should perform exploratory brain surgery on her father, who is now in a straitjacket in a padded room. And the reason I brought up his office is because it took me a moment to realize his office has a two-way mirror that looks directly into this padded room. So Mm -hmm. it's like he's got his own private experiment that happens right in front of his office. Which, why does he have this room? Because it's not, I mean, like, is he a psychiatrist? Because he's he's probably a consulting physician in case someone's brought into the hospital and they're exhibiting certain types of symptoms. They put Mm. them in the room for their own protection and he can observe them to help with a diagnosis. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. I mean, whatever. It's a lab. It's for human study. Yeah, but like, I've never seen this in a movie and definitely not in real life ever. But it's not a it's not a one way mirror, right? Like like people inside can see the outside. So he can see them and they can't see him, which is why I thought it was such a weird moment where he does hypnotize Dean Halsey. Right. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Bizarre. Okay. So just in case you couldn't figure out Dr. Hill's intentions towards Megan in this scene, he also more or less lays it on the line that he wants to fuck her. Yeah, it's it's not very subtle. He, that is not his strong suit. No, which is probably why he's single, because he's creepy, but also real bad at this. <laughs> That's a thing, right? <laughs> like, come on, red flags aplenty. Yeah, oof. So she promises to find out exactly what happened to her father and then finds out in the very next scene and she does not take the news that her dad is actually dead very well. Oh, no, and she slaps the fuck out of Dan. Not once, but twice. Twice! (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty satisfying because at this point, you know, we still want to think of Dan as a nice guy, but he 
he has gone along with some pretty bad shit. And again, I think that's why Megan functions so well in this movie is because her reaction is what a human being would do in these ridiculous circumstances. She's like, that's my fucking father. Yeah, but there is a note of tragedy to to Dan's character, right? Because he keeps digging himself deeper and deeper into this hole, all while having arguably the best intentions. Sure, sure. Like, I think in his mind, he thinks that he can fix this and he's still going to become a doctor. He and Megan are still going to get married. Like, yeah, I maybe killed your dad, but he's back now. We'll find a way to help him. And it's just like, dude. The train has left the station. I'm surprised Herbert doesn't step up and just be like, well, you didn't like him that much anyway, did you? He was an asshole. <laughs> and you don't really like her that much, do you? Because she doesn't have my penis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so uh, Hill ends up confronting Herbert West. He demands that he hand over his research. He basically says... I'm taking over to the point where he starts looking at the research under the microscope and saying, do what I tell you to do. Well, and so he hypnotized. Well, okay. do you think he actually hypnotizes Herbert here? Is Herbert playing along with it? Oh, 100% playing along. Okay. He's going to murder this guy the moment this guy confronts well, him. Because I love, so he, he, he like kind of walks back after he gives him the book and he picks mm-hmm. up the shovel. But I love that he doesn't immediately hit him. He lets Dr. Hill finish what he's saying, which is just, mm-hmm. I will be famous. <laughs> I just need a confirmation. Oh, you are narcissistic. Oh, this is the main reason why you want this. Not because you're interested in the science. I could have maybe allowed that. But no, you want to get famous. Bam. And I, I just love that it's not even, oh, I'm going to beat you over the head with this shovel. It's hit you when you're down. I just go for the decapitation. Dude. And honestly, honestly, the funniest gag in this movie to me is when the head will not stand upright in the bin. And so he grabs one of those like um receipt stabbers from a diner mm-hmm. and <laughs> props the head up on that. <laughs> Oh my god it is great stuff yes absolutely and honestly that called to mind the scene in alien whenever they're trying to prop ash's uh, head up after they knock his head off oh mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but there's a really bad cut in that movie where it's like we're clearly moving from like the fake head to the actual yes. actor's head yeah yeah all the stuff with the decapitated dr hill head worked really well for me here oh yeah, honestly, I think most of the comedy comes from him, even though he is the most despicable character in the film. Oh, yeah. I've got a note right here that says there's a big comedic moment when the head is cussing him out and the body yeah. sneaks up behind Herbert to knock him out. Yeah. <laughs> so good. It's so good. So good. <laughs> Okay, so meanwhile, Dan is looking through Dr. Hill's office. This is where he finds a file on Meg. And I love that we get details such as he has a napkin of hers as well as a lock of her hair. Oh, okay. The hair lock is psychotic behavior. A hundred percent. Like, this is tokenistic serial killer behavior. Which, to be fair, he is. He is, yes. (laughs) It just, he's giving off to quote a different hellraiser movie he's giving off strong dr chenard vibes oh yeah 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 it's interesting right because both hill and west are mad scientists Mm -hmm. cut from the same cloth but you know we just tolerate herbert more because he's not as bad (laughs) as hill Mm -hmm. (laughs) well he seems to be doing it one step above dan you know dan wants to do things because he believes in medicine and he wants to help people robert wants to move medicine forward and then there's dr hill who wants all of that but only so it can get him grant money and fame and megan's pussy (laughs) 
<laughs> Sir, I thought we said this last week. You cannot say pussy anymore. I can't say snatch. <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> so this is when we also discover that uh, Dr. Hill has, in fact, done some invasive surgery on Dean Halsey. And we see that he has lobotomized him with his laser thing. I'm surprised we don't see the lobotomy scene, but I'm happy for it. I think it's meant to be a bit of a reveal. You know, mm. we knew he was going to do something, but oh shit, we didn't expect him to do that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. So when Herbert West wakes up in the basement, we discover that Dr. Hill has stolen all of his notes, all of the serum. So he and okay, Dan are but- like, okay, we got to do this. Dr. Hill's headless body has stolen all of this. Yes, yes. <laughs> And so we see Dr. Hill's body tending to the head in his office at the school. And this is creepy, gross, funny stuff. You know, the head is in not a bucket, but like in a tray. And then the body tries to find blood so that the head can soak in it. But because the head is having to direct the vision of the body we just see the body stumbling around (laughs) my favorite comedic moment is how dr hill rolls his eyes at his own body making a mess i love it it's it it, it honestly calls to mind something out of a scooby-doo episode for me (laughs) it's so yeah it's very childish sight gag physical humor stuff and i think the reason it works for me so well is because it's unexpected i don't expect this kind of stuff i thought this movie was going to be serious well maybe you did well the first time you watch it when you (laughs) don't know what it's going for for sure yeah because even the cover and the stuff for this movie yeah it's like a mad scientist horror movie Mm -hmm. yeah you know i i thought we were going to be birth rebirthing oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah. which is like yeah there's a few comedic moments in that movie but that is just also deadly sad tragic admittedly i have not read any lovecraft just because i have not but does Mm -hmm. lovecraft have humor in his stories so i also haven't read lovecraft so we'll invite listeners to write in and let us know but i was given the impression the thing that he's known for is his cthulhu you know kind of creatures like very cosmic horror stuff that's usually what people associate him with i do know too the original iteration for the script for this movie was not comedic it was serious and a lot of the comedy came forth both from the actors and like while they were filming things that is wild Huh. Yeah, I mean, and th- th- granted, they did add more comedy to the screenplay eventually, but like right. a lot of it was born out of like happenstance. Right. And probably that week of rehearsals when they discovered, yep. oh, you know, if I do this, wouldn't it play better? Exactly. Because honestly, I think if you do this straight, no comedy, I don't think the film works as well as it does. No, 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 no. It, w- it would not be nearly as effective or, or I don't think it would be as remembered as highly. Yeah, I, I think it would actually just be a little generic and I... I recognize that sounds very dismissive, but there's a certain reason this movie became a cult hit. And I think it's because Jeffrey Combs' performance is so good. The ideas are intriguing, but also we're mixing that comedy into the conventional mad scientist story. And that helps it to stand out from a crowded pack. Well, and not to say that we hadn't had like incredibly gory movies before, but like, you sure. know, I feel like this was something where people feel like, oh, I've never seen anything like this before because, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the super gory splatter films were either like, you know, like, like low exploitation schlock that like people didn't have access to or, you know, maybe it was from Italian cinema. So it hadn't made it mm. across to the borders yet. 
But also, even with that home video market, you know, having that unrated VHS tape where it's like, ooh, this is this is scandalous. Let me watch this. Yeah, I'm thinking of Herschel Gordon Lewis, and I can't recall if things like Blood Feast are funny or if they're just gross. Well, it's so funny. For the longest time, I actually got Herschel Gordon Lewis and Stuart Gordon confused because they both have Gordon in their name. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) But I actually – I discovered – Herschel Gordon Lewis first because I think I've said this before, but in the Final Destination 2 DVD, they have like a making up featurette and they specifically right. reference the Wizard of Gore. And then in the movie mm. Juno, she's watching uh, Wizard of Gore with Jason Bateman. Oh, okay. Oh, Juno. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, yes, Dean Halsey has been lobotomized. Dr. Hill has stolen all this research. So now it's up to Herbert West and Dan to try to recover it and confront him. This is where Dr. Hill psychically connects or tells Dean Halsey to come out now and basically act as his somnambulist servant. So we... um. I do love the visual image of Dr. Hill sneaking into the yes! morgue with this anatomically fake ass head thing on top of the body. And he's just sneaking past Mace, who does not care because he's planning to go off and masturbate to Boudoir magazine. Yes. <laughs> but just like watching this headless, well, I'm sorry, this headed now corpse, mm-hmm. like try to like open the door because it sits there for a while, like trying to push it open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because, of course, so the good. head is actually in the carry-on bag. <laughs> yeah, so the head can't actually direct it. I, it's like, I think it's a bowling ball bag. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. It's so silly and stupid, but also <laughs> smart, right? Because, of course, this is what he would do. It's the perfect size for a head. <laughs> <laughs> um, One question for you, Trace. Why is Dr. Hill gasping for air when we unzip the bag when he doesn't have lungs? Don't think about it. Okay, okay. <laughs> I was like, that is a peculiar choice, but okay. His head is still psychically connected to the body, therefore sure. he still uses lungs. Yeah, I I guess. Mm-hmm. It's a magic mm-hmm. serum, Joe. <laughs> right, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go with it. <laughs> so, meanwhile, Dan and Megan are kind of half breaking up, half reassuring each other that they're better off without the other But uh, this is unfortunately when Dean Halsey breaks in, he knocks both of them unconscious, and we get this scene of father delivering daughter to the decapitated doctor in the morgue, stripping her naked on the slab as Dr. Hill oogles, sucks, and kisses her naked body. I actually found a lot of this more disturbing than the actual, like, well, we don't actually get cunnilingus, but that's where it's going. But yes. I actually found a lot, because we're, we're, like, right in Megan's face, and... Mm-hmm. And Barbara Crampton's boob is like like filling the entire like bottom left corner of the screen, so I, mm-hmm. it feels invasive in an uncom- an intentionally uncomfortable way. Mm-hmm. But this is where like the comedy and the horror like they're they're meshing. But you're kind of like I don't know yep. fully how I'm supposed to react to this right now. I think that's exactly it. So this is obviously being played for uncomfortable laughs. And I think it's really, really effective because just the sight of her naked as this grotesque decapitated head is lecherously licking its lips and saying, you know, oh, I'm going to make you love me and stuff like it is so fucking rapey. 
but also the image of dr hill is so comedic like he's a pathetic figure Mm -hmm. and megan's disgust is obviously very well earned but even just the sight of her trying to push this head that is being held in the hands of his body is so stupid (laughs) like you feel everything in this moment. Well, so I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you know, we, we've had lots of talks about sexual assault in this podcast before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that you have said in the past, you know, like very specifically, like rape, sexual assault is something that is not funny to you. But and I'm right. not saying that I'm not saying you're contradicting yourself at all. I'm just curious. How does that play into your viewing of this scene? Yeah, I mean, if we did this as a remake now, I think you would have to reevaluate whether or not you would include a scene like this. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think it's effective at what it's trying to do. I do find it lecherous, but in a way that is grounded in the characters. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not me thinking Stuart Gordon is a creepy perv, even though I think you could probably very easily make the argument, oh, well, it's framed in a very male gazy kind of way because mm-hmm. we are seeing her boobs, seeing her bush and all this stuff. But because the comedy is so intentional and I do find it really effective, it minimizes the sexual violence to me. Yeah. And I don't think we linger on it long enough to like, this isn't a full on assault. We don't have to watch it go down on her. Mm-hmm. And then it's just over. So I I think it's actually well executed for what it's trying to do, though I think you could, yeah, argue, does this have to be in here? The answer is probably no. Well, I think a key ingredient is that it's not the assault itself that is the comedy. Um, The movie is not treating the sexual assault lightly. It is not making fun of sexual assault. No. It's just there's all these outside factors around it in the scene Mm -hmm. that are contributing to comedy. So again, I, I, I think it's a fascinating discussion. I think anyone who would be upset by this scene is, you know, by all means, like obviously it's meant to be upsetting. Yes. But I do think that the juggling act of, yeah, that seriousness with the comedy is maybe, I want to say masterful in this scene because it can make the scene have a comedic aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Successfully. Yeah, without, without ever minimizing how horrifying this is for Megan, who is, yeah. as I've repeatedly said, our most human character in this movie. Yeah. I mean, again, this guy, because what I love with the hill head is that he doesn't have a normal voice anymore. He's like, rasping. Yes, like yes. And he's just telling her in his rasp voice, I've always admired your beauty, my dear. I think I've always loved you. You will love me. Yeah. <laughs> he's such a stupid, pathetic figure. And I think that that also helps to yeah just make it more tolerable because the idea that he could ever follow through on what he's looking to achieve is ludicrous like it's not just her initial reaction because your head has been severed dude it's like look at you what is wrong with you this is not going to happen (laughs) well honestly it's something that i always ask like specifically with like resident evil villains but also a lot of mad scientists where it's like oh let me inject myself with this thing and turn myself into a monster so i can take over the world and i was like Mm -hmm. but you're still a big gooey monster like what are you gonna do (laughs) yeah even if you get what you want do you really think the thing that you're actually after like this isn't gonna make it easier for you because you still have to live with this no, I'm just like, also, like, you're not really yourself anymore, dude. But yeah, but, no. but this Hill character, I'm like, come on, man, you're just severed. I, I guess the idea is that you keep doing the experiments and then you'll eventually like, well, I mean, shit, in that sequel, he just sprouts bat wings on his head. So there you go. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, okay, so thankfully at this point, Herbert and Dan have sort of snuck in. So Wes distracts Hill because, of course, they've still got this animosity with each other. Dan tries to sneak Megan out. Unfortunately, this is where Dr. Hill reveals this is all part of his big secret plan. So okay, this is great, though. I love it because, like, you know, Herbert's like, I have a plan. So do I. And then cut mm-hmm. and all these things just come out of their body bags. <laughs> Yeah, and it's one of those moments where Gordon, I think, cuts, but we're we're quite a bit further out in a long shot, so we can see more of the room, and we get to see all the bodies move at once, and... You know, in some ways, it's expected because we kept planting the seeds of how many bodies were in this morgue, and we kept right. seeing shots of all the bodies on the tables, and yet when they all sit up at once, it's a genuine oh-fuck moment. Yeah, no, like, like, the stakes have been raised. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this whole sequence is pure chaos. Oh, absolute chaos. Yeah, it, it's hard to follow, but deliberately so, particularly when we start to see gas into the proceedings. And, you know, we're just seeing Meg and Dan get attacked and Herbert is trying to, you know, he he figures out, oh, well, maybe I can use the reagent to explode or get rid of Dr. Hill's body. So he jams a bunch of them into the back and it kind of works. But then the intestines just come alive and start oh suffocating God. him. So I think that they actually used cow intestines for this. They pump. did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This this is very fun. And again, there's these naked corpses just flying around everywhere. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. And this, I think, is probably the closest that I feel to evil dead uh-huh. levels of madness, particularly with these intestines going after Herbert, because it feels, you know, a little bit like woodsy tree tentacle stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the room is filling with smoke. Dean Halsey is convinced by Meg to kind of come to his senses so he loses the stupor the glamour whatever dr hill put on him he ends up starting to fight back eventually he is overwhelmed but it buys them enough time to escape so he gets torn apart by all of these corpses poor mr halsey looks great it's even a nice arc for this character who wasn't really a character I know. I honestly, the moment where he comes to for a little bit is actually quite a touching moment in a scene that's yeah. anything but. <laughs> because Dean Halsey didn't seem like a total asshole. He felt like maybe he was being misguided, or you know, he's a classic administrator character where right. he needs to look out for money and reputation. But he also genuinely loves his daughter, and when she breaks through to him and he recognizes that he can save her, it's great. It's heartfelt. Uh huh. Okay, so Dean Halsey is being torn apart. This is where Herbert manages to kind of break a little bit free of these intestines, and he throws Dan and Meg his notes. And I'm going to bring Petrie back to this, so they're seeing more parallels between Dan and Herbert here. So in their introduction... We saw West coolly brush off Dan's handshake. So when they're first introduced by Dean Halsey in the morgue, Herbert kind of looks at Dan's offer of like hey how you doing he just dismisses it Mm -hmm. and here when he throws the notes we actually get a close-up of their hands reaching for each other and it's Uh... this nice sort of full circle moment where herbert is finally willing to compromise and meet the man of his dreams halfway (laughs) He's, he's willing to die for his research or is it his research or is it his lover Yes, yes to both. (laughs) 
So Dan and Meg manage to escape with the research. Uh, they have to battle a corpse in the hall, but they seem to get away from it. They get into the elevator. The fight choreography on this naked zombie that's attacking Dan is really good, though, because the way we're hiding really the dick. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Strategic hiding a penis. Always important. I'm sure there's a cock sock on him, but still. Sure. So uh, we get into this elevator and Meg is being strangled by the one arm man corpse who is played by Craig Reed. And of course, it still has its arm until Dan severs it with the axe. I think the reason why I mean, it's, I, obviously, we are this is tragic that, that, that Megan mm-hmm. dies here, but it's also such an unceremonious death that she just happens to get strangled right at the finish line, right at the finish line. It is tragic. You're right. It's deeply tragic. I think the reason that it it hits so well for me is because this movie has done everything to make you believe that these heterosexual young lovers are going to make it out of this alive, right? Like, Uh, this feels very dramatic, almost Dawn of the Dead style, right? Like, we're going to get in the helicopter and we're going to fly away. But just like that film... We don't get the classic reuniting and safety of a heterosexual union because Meg just dies here. And that's why So I actually we should cover Bride of Reanimator one day because I know that Petrie also has a part two to their article Mm -hmm. that goes into Bride of Reanimator. Yes. Yeah. And honestly, if it's anything like this, I would happily watch it because it's a blind spot. Well, it's West and Kane working together, out, out, mm-hmm. admittedly, to build a female partner for Dan, sure. but they're still working together to create life. I mean, hello, we talked about Bride of Frankenstein because mm-hmm. that movie is gay as fuck as well. Oh, yeah. And actually, oh, you know what? Maybe we'll time it with the release of that Maggie Gyllenhaal Bride of Frankenstein movie. <laughs> there we go. There we go. So, Meg is dead i i do love how unceremonious it is because Mm -hmm. you think oh she'll shake it off like we've seen a billion people do you know oh i got strangled i'm perfectly fine i'll have some light bruising on my necks in the next scene and i'll be okay it's like when people drown but then they just like wait and beat and they cough up like a bunch of water (laughs) Mm -hmm. i just gotta do cpr for two beats and then they'll be fine and that's what you think is gonna happen in this final scene you know he's Uh he's doing the defibrillator on and you're like okay cool like we're gonna get that heartbeat and Mm -hmm. nope Nope. So Dr. Herod cuts him off and says, you know, hey, have we learned anything over the course of this film? And it seems like Dan, again, has a full circle moment. It's an exact replica of the opening introductory scene, except this time he knows to call it quits. She's gone. Well, but (laughs) (laughs) so the room clears out and then of course we see dan collect a dose of the reagent and he administers it to meg as we cut to black we hear her scream it's a great ending and honestly i have so much respect for gordon being like yeah the unrated cut is my preferred version and it's the shortest version out of all of them (laughs) I mean, sometimes telling a concise story is the most efficient way to do it. Well, so I will say on this Arab Blu-ray, they have 23 minutes of extended scenes. So it's all scenes that exist, but they're longer. And I have to assume these are what would be in that integral cut. Uh And even watching them, I was like, oh, yeah, I feel like this would drag the pacing down a lot. I mean, again, you're adding Mm -hmm. 20 minutes to this movie. Yeah, and that that I think is one of the other reasons this works really well for me is because once we get down into the morgue and we're administering the reagent to this corpse the the first time before we give it a double dose and everything, 
the movie never stops. Like it is mm-hmm. jokes, it is gore to the max, but like we have hit the accelerator and the movie never slows down. Yeah. And I think to introduce a little levity or let scenes play out longer would feel like we're compromising on that inevitability. Like we cannot stop what's coming. But if you let scenes play out longer, it'd be like, eh, it's a little draggy. Well, and I think a lot of the scenes, again, it's a lot of dialogue scenes adding character development. But I think that speaks to how good the unrated version already is at doing that to where we don't need those extra scenes. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's uh, that's Reanimator, everybody. Joe, Ooh. final thoughts? This was a blast. I had a little bit of trepidation about revisiting this because I felt like you and I were both kind of lukewarm on it. Mm. And I was so pleased to just be delighted at this film. Like, I really, really ended up enjoying it. And it was nice to see. Yeah, okay, we're vindicated. This is definitely queer horror. Yeah, uh, I I like this more in a second viewing. I I don't love this movie. Like, I I do really like it, but it's not one of my favorites. And maybe it's because I did see it for the very first time late in life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, because I'm also not the biggest fan of Pet Cemetery either. I just don't think I find the concept of resurrecting loved ones. Oh, no. It's not that interesting of a story for me. So it's because it requires you to believe in people doing stupid things for loved ones. Like every time somebody brings somebody back from the dead, I'm just like, no, it's not going to work. It never works. Why do you keep doing it? Do I understand why people do it? Absolutely. But again, I just don't find those stories that particularly compelling. Now, granted, Mm -hmm. ask me again in 20 years when I've lost more loved ones and I may have a change of tune, but like, so again, it's a me thing, not a movie thing. I, I see all the work that's here. I, I think this is a fantastic movie. It accomplishes exactly what it's trying to do. It's mm-hmm. just not my like go-to movie. Yeah, yeah. I think that this is one that I may put into a heavier rotation. You know, mm-hmm. I bought the Arrow disc and thought, yeah, I'm sure we'll cover it on the pod one day, so I'll just have it. But I wasn't eager to check it out until we programmed it. And now I'm thinking, you know what? Yeah, like I could definitely imagine picking up the next entry, but also just kind of casually tossing this on when I want to watch Mayhem. Yeah, I think it's a good party movie, too. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, just some quick housekeeping to get out of the way. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. If you want to chat with other listeners, go ahead and join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you could, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. If you subscribe today, you will get 285 hours of Patreon content, including this month's new episodes on Hannibal Season 1, Episode 1, Mimic, Founder's Day, Night Swim, and our audio commentary on Jennifer Kemp's The Babadook for its 10th, count it, 10th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Tracy must be so glad that's the last time you have to do that list because, of course, it's the last day of the month. So last we're going to have new <laughs> stuff to talk about next week. Yes, I'm so excited for February. But uh, actually, speaking of February, Joe, um, mm-hmm. what are we covering next week? Okay, so confession time, folks. Originally, we had planned to talk about The Uninvited because we wanted to do an older horror film. Uh, I was going to say, wait, the 40s one, not the remake of A Tale of Two Sisters. 
Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, we discovered that it is not streaming anywhere. So it's a really difficult film to track down. So we will keep that in the back pocket in case it ever shows up. But we wanted to stick around that time period. So we have got a great alternative when I'm very excited to check out Trace, if only because of a certain cast member. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're going to stick with narcissistic gaze. We're going to talk about The Picture of Dorian Gray from 1945. And this features Angela Lansbury and I believe her third film role. I'm so excited to check this out. Hey, would you believe that I've never seen any iteration of Dorian Gray or read any of them? Okay, so I have read and I think I've seen one version of it. There's one from the 2000s with Ben Barnes that I definitely remember like seeing the box for good not good i I, I would believe i think colin firth might have been in it too oh god okay anyway but yeah i'm really excited to check this out i know the story um but my most exposure to it is from penny dreadful so um i'm actually really excited to check this out and again see angela lansbury in her prime well not her prime but like her beginnings (laughs) there we go yeah baby angela lansbury angela no i couldn't do a pun never mind Angela Burberry. (laughs) Angela Bane. Fuck. Okay. Anyway, until next week, everyone, we can cross out Reanimator. Indeed. And cross out Horror Queers. (laughs) 